Welcome to today's Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here, um, with a minimal vocal capacity, having uh, having uh, had uh, had some fun this weekend with laryngitis. Uh, no. uh, you know, I, we used to we used to always make when my mom would get laryngitis as a kid, and it happened a lot. My, my brothers and I, we were like in heaven. Oh my, man, we can we can get away with all sorts of stuff. She can't yell at us. Well, I guess the universe is punishing me for thinking such, such horrible thoughts when my mom couldn't talk. But here we are. Is there any way we can blame this on uh, climate change? We, there's probably some climate change. <laughs> and if we can't blame climate change, we can always blame Donald Trump. <laughs> anyway. Now, so, hey, we've got a good show for you today. Later in the program, we'll be talking about uh, Bernie Sanders' uh, Stop Bezos Act. Uh, this is the uh, proposal that actually is very fair and should get some attention by... Uh, across the political spectrum, dealing with Amazon and Walmart. We'll also talk, of course, about the uh, Brett Kavanaugh uh, uh, circus. <laughs> what do I call that? And um, more on the agenda as well. But first, I um, want to welcome uh, Evan Berger to the studio with Charles Goldman and myself here. Uh, uh, Evan is, um, has been charged with uh, a fairly important task. Him and a, a group of um, Iowa Democrats, in this case, uh, have been meeting and working with national uh, and folks on the national party from the state parties across the country to try to come up with an equitable approach to presenting the Iowa caucuses. Evan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ed. Glad to be here. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there's been lots of problems with the caucuses. And, <laughs> and in 2016, the biggest concern was, did Hillary Clinton really win? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And did every vote count? Yeah. Uh, and how about all the people who couldn't make it to the caucuses because the weather was horrible? All of those are very legitimate concerns. Um, and along with that, the issue of superdelegates was addressed. So mm-hmm. kick it off. Tell us, give us your best description of uh, what transpired in last month's meeting and what it means. Yeah, sounds good. It, and actually, if it's all right, I'll start back in 2016 uh, okay. <laughs> to, to kind of give some, some background. I'll, I'll Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so like you said, the, the DNC had had a their summer meeting um, last month where they made some pretty big decisions. But those decisions really came out of the 2016 um, caucuses, primaries, and really the national convention. So you touched on some of the things we saw here in Iowa. Of course, at um, at the national convention uh, in 2016, um, you know that's when uh, Hillary Clinton officially got the nomination. But one of the, the kind of deals that Bernie and his campaign struck with Hillary Clinton was okay. Well, you know. Um, we will uh, support this nomination, uh, you won fair and square, but we do need to talk about some serious reforms to the process. So they formed this committee called the, the Unity Reform right. Commission. And, and the, and the uh, party leaders agreed to make those. Exactly. But just because they agreed to do it doesn't mean they would. Yeah. Did they? <laughs> yeah, well, I think, I think so. And I think the process that turned out, and, you know, I think Bernie's very smart. A lot of these actors are very smart. Um, but... Uh, the Unity Reform Commission, one thing that was important is that this commission has... Unity Reform. That's right. Okay. Unity and Reform. So and you can, reform. You can okay. think that maybe um, the Hillary Clinton side was maybe more in, invested in the Unity piece, and the Bernie side was more invested in the Reform piece, but they're equal equal parts of the name, Unity Reform Commission. Okay. So um, that commission was made up of um, a group of people that Bernie uh, nominated. He got to choose some of the members of that commission. Hillary got to choose some some members of the commission, and then the DNC chair got some seats reserved for him. So that ended up being Tom Perez. That's a whole other story there. Right, 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 right. right, right. Um, So Tom Perez got to appoint some members to that as well. And this commission, I do think, had broad latitude to um, address, you know, really whatever whatever people wanted to bring up. And it it does have some binding. um, The party is bound to its decisions in some meaningful ways. So... Um, but not completely bound. Exactly. So as with everything, so basically the way it, it played out is the Unity Reform Commission talked about some... It was it was mostly these broad principles like caucuses should be um, 
more uh, accessible, and primaries should be more transparent, and um, you know. People should be able to register to vote on the same day of their and primary. Su- and superdelegates should be abolished. Exactly. Right, <laughs> well, right. well, so... Um, well, I mean, s- some some say they should be abolished. Exactly, yeah. So there was... Uh, so I do think that um, the, you know, the Uniform Commission, without going too much into that procedural step, um, was a pretty robust discussion, and they spent about a, a year um, discussing all these changes, any changes that people wanted to bring up, things that they wanted to see changed in the, in the Democratic Party. And, you know, Hillary people, Bernie people, Perez people <laughs> all hashed it out and really looked at a bunch of these different options. And they came up with this report in December that addressed a bunch of different things. So it addressed changes to the primaries, changes to superdelegate system, changes to caucuses and internal party reforms, mostly at the DNC level about, you know, how consultants are hired. And that's so could thing. we start with the superdelegate? question? Yeah, sure. I mean, sure. That's, that's, uh, that's yeah. a much bigger issue than yes. that with caucuses <laughs> and one that has is of interest nationally. So what, right. what change is. And again, is this a recommended change or yeah. an actual change? Yeah. So what happens with regards to superdelegates? Yeah, definitely. So what the the decision that the DNC ultimately made in August was a pretty almost I won't call it unanimous, but it had broad support across all wings of the party: progressives, establishment. How many wings do we have? <laughs> uh, yeah, open question. <laughs> but um, but I do think um, so. The, the ultimate decision is that um, it, as opposed to in 2016, where superdelegates. Got to cast a vote. A superdelegate's vote was just as equal as a delegate. They were treated so, the same. So you're going to have a situation like in West, West Virginia where uh-huh. every single county, all 55 counties, yep. vote for Bernie Sanders, yep. and yet the state's superdelegates give the entire nomination to Hillary Clinton. Yeah, well, not the oh, entire no, state. The, 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 the de- all the delegates in West Virginia. Well, not all of them, but, yeah. but enough of them to... Uh, to counteract the fact that Sanders actually won every county. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, yeah, there's the pledged delegates, and then there's unpledged delegates. Sure. So it, can't, it cancels out, yeah. how some people would say it. So, so that was 2016. Now, looking forward to 2020, and these are the delegate selection rules and the rules for the 2020 convention. So these are, this is like what's set in stone, pretty much, is um, superdelegates cannot vote on the first round of the presidential uh, nomination ballot. So if you think back, you know, to 2016 or even, you know, 2008, um, in, where, whereas before, superdelegates get to cast their vote along with all the pledged delegates. Um, now, that's not the case. So what would have happened in West Virginia uh-huh. where where Sanders was the clear winner? Right. So what, uh, would, would he have won and then the superdelegate vote would not have mattered? They wouldn't have had a chance to vote on the second ballot because there would not have been a second ballot? Exactly. That's exactly right. All right. That's exactly right. And the idea is that this... You know, the big problem with the superdelegates is they have this vote, but it's also this perception problem where, you know, the media is counting up, here's how many superdelegates Hillary has, and here's how many superdelegates Bernie has. I mean, as the primary and caucus season is Exactly. So even before a vote is cast, you know, a candidate was coming in with what looked like a massive lead. If you look at any sort of news story, unless you understood the ins and outs of the the primary process, Mm -hmm. it looked like Clinton had this massive lead. Very reminiscent of the gerrymandering that... Uh, the Republicans are notorious for yeah. now that the, the Democrats essentially have to win what eight to ten percent more of the vote. Yes, yes, the, yeah. the popular vote, the national vote, to be able to take control of the House, which yeah. is, of course is ludicrous. Yeah. this is a separate subject, but yeah, but it's the same. Yeah. I mean, it's the yeah. same idea, which is that you you know you're you have uh, negated representativeness. Yeah, it's an un, undemocratic system in some ways. People would say, myself right. included. So well, yeah. they would argue they're public. They're not. They aren't democratic systems, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the parties are right. corporations, yes. essentially. Yeah. All right, so this is a change that's 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 going to happen. Yes, this exactly. is, that this one's not up for debate. Yeah, it's a, and it sounds like a very positive change. There is one caveat, which uh-huh. is that uh-huh. <laughs> I was waiting for the caveat. All right, which is that um, 
if if uh, it does go to a second ballot, well, there are two caveats. The first caveat is if the first ballot is not determinative, and this has never happened in the modern uh, presidential primary system. I think the last time was like Eisenhower or something. And um, the if it, so if it does go to a second ballot, then the superdelegates do get to cast their votes. And so this is kind of this was a point of contention. This was a compromised position, but you know Larry Cohen, Jeff Weaver, Bernie Sanders, that entire wing of the party, they were all they all encouraged their supporters to vote for this right. proposal. And for me, the fact that we've never seen a second ballot in either party since the fifties, this is this is a compromise that I'm willing to make. So that's one caveat. You said yeah. there were two. The second caveat is more of a. Um, a it's a procedural thing. So there is one case where superdelegates get to vote on the first ballot, and that's if one candidate has so much, has so many votes, so many delegates that support them that they win it no matter how the superdelegates vote. So the the idea is if you run up the score, and you know, let's say Bernie in twenty twenty, he runs and he he gets so many delegates that there's even if all the superdelegates voted for his opponent, he would still win. Then they then they let the superdelegates vote on the first round of balloting. And it's purely kind of this formal vote. It's not really a meaningful vote in any way. So if uh, the numbers say that superdelegates are likely to lose their preference, we let them vote. Exactly. It's like a mercy rule. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. Exactly. You get to vote, but it doesn't that's mean like, anything. It's like, right. like the Patriots are up 38 to nothing over the Miami Dolphins, so let them score a touchdown exactly, exactly. in the last couple of minutes. Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah, yeah, actually. Okay, right, and I think, I think what they're, they're looking for is if that is the case, then the superdelegates would all come in. Well, whatever. Who knows? The idea is that they want to do one of these like um, acceptance by acclamation sorts of things. Okay, so... Well, either that or it allows the... DLC people to say, see, we were right if the, you know, because what the concern of the Democratic Party is, is to have another like Michael Dukakis, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, McGovern. Yes, McGovern. And there, that's exactly. really where the superdelegate thing came from, which was that yeah. the party machinery didn't really want to hand right. the choice to <clears throat> Democrats. So the superdelegates could then be responsible for nominating the losing candidate. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's correct. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, because we can't let the people do that. Well, we have to do it. I'm interested <laughs> that they're, gonna, they're, they're also going to, you know, consider their consultants. To me. If the Democratic Party should fire every one of their consultants <laughs> at this point and just hire the ones the Republicans have. <laughs> the Democratic Party consultants are are absolutely, to my mind, mostly worthless. Okay, careful, we're on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> worthless, you can, you can say worthless. Yeah. Okay, all right. Mostly worthless. So, hey, beyond beyond the superdelegate issue, the changes to the caucuses. Yes. Uh, these are pretty big. Yes, I pretty think so. Big. I think, and for me, I think, for us here in Iowa, these changes are actually going to affect our lives in a much more concrete way than the superdelegate right. changes. I think superdelegate reform was good, but the caucus reforms, I'm super excited about these because, I, again, these are the ru- rules that were set in place. This stuff is set in stone. State parties have to comply with, with uh, some of these reforms that they put in. So just uh, the, the quick overview is there, there are kind of four, uh, four big reforms. Um, and I did write an article in the register, uh, an op-ed in the register here. Um, but the first one is that... Um, the, uh, the there's an absentee balloting balloting um, uh, option. There has to be some way to participate absentee in the caucuses in 2020. So, uh, so the danger there, though, is that everybody says, "Why am I going to go out? It's 20 degrees, 10 exactly. degrees. It's a blizzard. I'm going to stay home and cast my ballot ahead of time, and then nobody's going to show up and eat those cookies." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so that is that is one concern. One thing. So the delegate selection rules, the the what the DNC decided. Um, 
in August said it's not no fault absentee balloting. So, for instance, uh, in, a, in an election here in Iowa, you don't have to give a reason to get an absentee right. ballot. For this, in this case, they listed out some specific things like because of work, disability. Um, I think childcare was one of them. Um, there were about four different uh, four different reasons that you could request a ballot. Now, the state party could go above and beyond and allow kind of no excuse absentee participation. But as far as the DNC is concerned, it just they at least have to do for some for, for these specific reasons. And what format is this absentee ballot going to be? Is it a, are we talking paper balloting? That is a great question, um, <laughs> and that's kind of the phase that we're in now. So. From the Unity Reform Commission to the DNC and now to the state parties is kind of starting with big principles and then talking implementation and finer and finer detail. And so that's the kind of question that the, the state parties are looking at now. And um, actually, the the IDP, Iowa Democratic Party, um, is doing a series of listening posts around the state to get people's thoughts about what should this look like. Well, I can tell you yeah. what my thoughts are. <laughs> yeah. Don't involve the, any computer or any yeah. machine yeah. whatsoever yeah. and do it by paper. Yeah. That was, that was my suggestion as well. So that's the first reform. The second one um, is that there has to be a raw vote count. So for those of you who are really into the caucuses, you know that um, the results are reported in terms of um, state delegate equivalents, which is this uh, <laughs> this uh, term that no one understands. Um, I do understand it. I feel, I feel yeah. like a total geek that I understand. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Something's wrong with me. Yeah. <laughs> I should be spending more time watching TV. My gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so the, uh, but in 2020, they might still report SDEs, but they SCDs? also... SDEs? SDEs. Oh, SDEs. Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. <laughs> state delegate equivalents. But they will also have to report, here's how many people came into the caucuses supporting Martin right. O'Malley, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, if those three were the candidates. So um, the, the third reform is that also on the delegate point, um, the, uh, the you know, again, for, for um, nerds like us, you know, we know that um, in Iowa's caucus to convention program, you ha- if you don't, you have to keep organizing through these um, uh, county and de- district and state conventions in order to say, right. like, keep your support. Right. Now it's locked in at the caucus level. And then the fourth one is that there has to be a recount process. Mm. They don't say, DNC says nothing about what that recount process yeah. looks like, but they say there has to be some way to request a recount. These all seem like really good changes mm. to me. I agree. I agree. I'm excited. Ed. So who's going to mess it up? <laughs> <laughs> well, so, you know, the classic answer is always New Hampshire. So the, the you know what 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 people say is that New so New Hampshire does have a law saying that they have to have the first primary right. in the country. And is this starting to look too much exactly. like a primary? Exactly. Right. I think the answer is no and also by the way I think the Democratic Party has to start acting like a national party <laughs> at some at some point and say actually New Hampshire we're not going to let you mess up Iowa stuff any longer. Well, <laughs> or or does the National Party say look is it is really not fair that Two states get to go first every yes, time. I mean, I, I, I love the Iowa caucuses, yeah. but is there any reason why we shouldn't have a rotating, you know, first four right. instead of New Hampshire, Iowa, Nevada, South Carolina? Shift that around a bit. Somebody from the north, Midwest, West, yep. South. Could be. It could be. I will say that the the 2020 calendar has been set, and Iowa is the the first again, unless we violate these delegate selection rules and they bump us to the back. Okay. Um, but that was a big part of the conversation, and right. you know, yeah. always first in the nation is is at the center of all this. So. All right, interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, I, anything else, Charles? Any other no, questions? I think that's, that's fascinating. I mean, I've, I've always been bewildered by the caucus pro- practices <laughs> ever since I moved here about ten years ago. So yeah, um, I, I think. Moving toward not precluding some of the losers mm-hmm. coming out of Iowa would be a great step forward, giving us some idea of what was the support yes. for the people who haven't already been anointed by the press, the two usually, yeah. since they like the horse race you know, kind of uh, view. Um, 
that in of itself would be great to know that maybe the person who came in third wasn't all that far behind. Yes. I remember the the person who came in third in 1988 was Mike Dukakis, <laughs> and he went on to win, of course. And the right. person who finished second nationally after the whole season was over was Jesse Jackson, who finished mm. fourth here in Iowa. Mm. Yeah, and 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 the guy who went on to be the most politically viable. Al Gore finished last in Iowa. So, you know, sometimes we're not that good of a barometer. Of, well, and this yeah, is, this is going to be, pulse. I think, a, a real interesting primary uh, season. Oh, yeah. Because there's, there's such a myriad of candidates yeah. out there right now. You're yeah. probably going to be looking at numbers that the winner is not going to have even a plurality, right. I think. Coming out of Iowa. Coming out of yeah, Iowa. Yeah. There's just going to be too many people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we shall see. And yeah. uh, we're going to move on to some other topics after a short break here. I want to thank Evan Berger for joining us. Uh, yeah. Evan, th- thanks for your... Thank I know, you. I know this, is, this is thankless work, and I appreciate <laughs> your, your willingness to do it. Yeah, thank you, Ed. All right, we'll be back in a couple minutes, folks, on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the lively cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. Times are tough, and most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sargent's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust Sargent's to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sargent's Garage at 246-8149. That's 246-8149. Community CPA and Associates, with locations in Des Moines and Coralville, is the perfect place to go for all of your tax and accounting needs. Community CPA offers a wide array of services, from tax planning to business IT solutions. Call Community CPA today at 515-288-3188 or visit www.communitycpa.com for more information. Hi folks, it's Ed Fallon reminding you that you can eat Iowa-grown food all winter long at Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. Over 90% of the food served at Hawk comes from Iowa farms and their dishes are amazing. I once brought a guy there from New York and he was blown away by the experience. He said it was like any fine dining you'd enjoy in Greenwich Village, but at one-fourth the price. So don't go all the way to to New York City when you can enjoy gourmet dining prepared with Iowa-grown food at Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village. Ritual Cafe is located at 13th and Locust in beautiful downtown Des Moines. It's a great place for coffee, tea, smoothies, and a full vegetarian menu. Ritual Cafe also features music on the weekends. For more information, call Ritual Cafe at 515-288-4872. That's 515-288-4872. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like our cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie and delicious olive bar and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let our catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Our expert floral designers can even customize perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market. Good food, great entertaining. 
folks, it's Ed Fallon with you on the Fallon Forum, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the uh, cultural and culinary crossroads of America, and also the uh, the um, the where the uh, caucus excitement will be starting in about oh, just over, boy, not much more than a year. Wow, crazy. Okay, so yeah, probably um, by the end of the year, I would suspect, because. Yeah, I mean, after the they mid-term have to have the there. committees getting, you know, get the committees together to extract money from Wall Street. And <laughs> that's right. Oil and gas interests <laughs> as a campaign of a party of the people. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, it'll be, you know, who, who knows what's going to happen on the Republican side too. It's kind of a well. Wild. They don't make any. They don't make any, uh, you know, even even false impression that they're really a party of the people. Well, they're the Donald Trump Donald Trump party now, right? right? Right, yeah, a, yeah. a supposed party. billionaire, a full billionaire populist. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we've had enough of that for a while. Let's yeah. uh, let's turn our attention to the uh, federal level. The big news this past week, of course, is the um, is the uh, Kavanaugh uh, dog and pony show. Um, you know, I, I I don't know how you feel, but I was not particularly okay. I was embarrassed. I'll go that far. I was embarrassed by our Senator Chuck Grassley. I think uh, I think he did not. Seem to be really interested in, um, in in seeing that process work, and um, you know, I, I guess that should be no surprise at this point. But uh, still, very disappointing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he and Orrin Hatch, and most, and also Lindsey Graham. Uh, I agree. Was it was a total embarrassment. And on on the flip side, I found the Democrats to just be harping on the same points over and over and over again, um, and unprepared really to answer what Kavanaugh was saying. Okay, so they they started down this thing with the high school yearbook, and they could have had their staff Google what these terms meant that Kavanaugh had in his famous his now famous calendar, right? <laughs> Um, and and could then have said when he said, "Oh, this is you know this means this is a drinking game, et cetera, et cetera." They could have said, "Then why in the Urban Dictionary online does it say that Devil's Triangle is what it is?" You know, um, it, it was just an embarrassment for everybody involved, as far as I'm concerned. So an embarrassment for America. Well, what's what's the real issue with with Judge Kavanaugh? The real issue with Judge Kavanaugh is that he. Started out as a political operative. Uh, you know, it, it actually interested me that nothing – it didn't come up until I, I just found this article from um, the Post from yesterday. Uh, I didn't realize that actually the fight over Judge Kavanaugh lasted almost four years for him to be appointed to the Court of Appeals. Um, there were v- grave concerns on the part of the Democrats when Bush nominated him in 2003 about the fact that he is not impartial. He was. He's a. Well, poli- that's that, that's the biggest concern. He's a political hack. The Supreme Court has to be, not has to be impartial, or 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 the entire justice system falls apart. Well, okay, but I mean that's of course, what you know the Federalist Society would have you believe that you know the Supreme Court is made up of impartial justices. Of course, well, it's it, not. It impartial. should be. It should be. And, and you know we have a we have a system in Iowa that I would recommend as a, as as a you know possible. Approach to how we would deal with uh, appointments at the federal level. You know, you've got an independent commission. Half the commission members are, are political appointees, but the other half are appointed by by lawyers, right. by, by by folks who understand. And, and I'm, you know, you don't you won't find me too often defending lawyers, but I will say they understand law pretty well, and and they're not necessarily politically involved. 
Mm-hmm. And so this this you know this is how the commission in Iowa is appointed, and then that commission receives nominations from anybody who wants to apply for the job and is qualified, and then recommends three, and the governor in this case selects one. Well, now, why why not a similar system for federal appointments? Uh, I- I, I just don't see that happening. I don't either, but why not? <laughs> well, I mean, I, there, I mean, were, there are a lot of suggested reforms for the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, and let's be clear, uh, two things about the Supreme Court. Number one, the number of justices is not fixed by the Constitution. It's been more in the past. Well, and, yeah, but, but secondly, we settled on the, the size of a baseball team. Right. <laughs> secondly, its right of judicial review was wrested from the other branches in the early 1800s. Um, so it's not even clear that it's function. It, since we, we're supposed to be doing the originalist thing, looking what does the Constitution say? That's how these judges supposedly are going to uh, are going to decide, like Judge Kavanaugh and Alito and and Thomas, who basically you can pretty much predict their votes yeah. before the case is even argued. Right, right. And that's, uh, that's the problem. That's the problem. When, when your vote is so predictable because of your partisan lean, then your judicial you know, independence, your discretion is 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 not it's 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 lost. And and in oddly enough, and maybe not oddly, the quote liberal foursome on the Supreme Court, they're fairly predictable on certain social issues, but for the most part, they are nowhere near as predictable as the right. conservative fivesome. But let's let's go back to what were the concerns about Judge Kavanaugh in two thousand six. Because the 2003? well, two thousand three, and then in two thousand six, okay. right. when he it, they they tried to push him again, um, the American Bar Association wrote that they questioned his freedom from bias and open mindedness, and they felt that he some of the ju- other judges viewing his work said he's immovable, stubborn, and frustrating to deal with. He's sanctimonious, and one of the other justices said he dissembled in the courtroom. Dissembled meaning for those of you out there looking it up on the internet, lie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that although he has his, his intellectual capacity and his analytical ability is unquestioned, there was a split vote in 2006 f- with the ABA feeling that he the American, this, Bar the American Bar Association felt he's so insulated that he would be unable to judge fairly in the future. He's no different. Well, he sounds like a perfect nominee for for uh, President Trump. Well, he he of course he is because. He's a perfect nominee for President Trump, and the reason he was selected over the other three finalists um, on the list that – by the way, you know, the president brags about this list, but he was handed it by the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation. He, he wouldn't know these people and if he fell over them. Um, he's – the president is enamored of Harvard and Yale graduates. He said that in the process. And I'm perfectly honest. I'm sick of Harvard and Yale Law School graduates. If you want to talk about a little diversity on the court, how about enough Catholics, enough Jews? And I'm saying that as a you know Jewish person, but to a Catholic guy, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's enough with with that. But more importantly, it's the same Ivy League schools of law over and over and over again. Yeah. And you want to, you know, there are other law schools in this country. So uh, before we run to a break, back, back to, I mean, I, I, think, I think these are all very important talking points, discussion points that are lost in the conversation about, you know, Brett Kavanaugh's uh, take on Christine Blasey Ford's accusations. You know, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the centerpiece of the conversation nationally. And it's an important conversation. But I, you know, you know the, the, I guess part of the problem is the Judiciary Committee's um, interview is basically a court case without having the 
the weight of law behind it without having the diligence of a, you know, a, a more formal judicial process behind it. And you come out of it with, with um, partisan you know, tempers being inflamed on both sides, but without any real conclusion, without any ability to say, okay, you know, Ford's testimony makes perfect sense. Yes, thus Kavanaugh is disqualified. And, you know, and, and I, I think the independent observers that I've, I've observed uh, analyzing this, you know, suggest that Kavanaugh um, had the weaker case with Ford's testimony being very compelling for the most part. But the... Um, but again, the problem is it's not it's it's kind of like a an attempt at judicial process without having, you know, the the actual process um, agreed to and and uh, and followed. Well, I, I think the problem we've gotten to is that with nine justices, with no term limits, which obviously would be the first reform I'd seek sure. for Supreme Court justices. Yes, um, every appointment becomes a pitch battle. Hmm. And the real battle here is the reason that the Democrats, except for the supposedly vulnerable Democrats, came out and said it really doesn't matter who off that list you pick, we're against them, is because you know what's coming off that list. You know the judicial philosophy coming right. off that list. Yeah. And it, it devolved into this personality issue yeah. because the only way that they feel that they can extract a couple of votes from the Republicans – is on the issue of the veracity of what Judge Kavanaugh said. Hmm. To my mind, I think it's pretty clear to anybody who watched, he lied. He lied about not just this. Right. He lied about his activities in, in the Bush administration, which, by the way, one of the reasons that the, Demo the Republicans are trying to rush this through is they're still waiting for the other like 90% of documents to be delivered by the National Archives, which they've been slow walking mm -hmm. to see if he – and so what happens when, if he gets nominated or he gets approved and then this comes out, then in fact he was down with the torture memos right from the beginning, that he was involved in things yeah. that he claimed he wasn't. Oops, too late. Too late. <laughs> I know, right? Too late. Right. Well, uh, well, it'll be interesting to see what happens this coming week, and we may be talking about this again next week. Uh, but yeah, the <laughs> thanks to uh, Jeff Flake being insistent, the FBI is doing an investigation and – who knows where that's going to land? And uh, let us not forget the result of the three-day investigation of uh, Hill, Anita yeah, Hill, Anita Hill during right. the Clarence Thomas hearing. They they gave the Republicans ammunition to to castigate her. Yeah, and you of think course, that, might, that might be the direction of this. And of course. Yeah. That was led by the sanctimonious John Danforth, who subsequently never talked to Clarence Thomas again when it became clear that Thomas had lied yeah. you know, yeah. and, and used the race card, yeah. Mr. Non-Affirmative Action, you know, used the race card and talked about lynching to get himself on the court. Yeah. Well, hey, we've got to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, Bernie Sanders' efforts to uh, um, all kind of wean Amazon off of uh, paying welfare wages. And uh, we'll also talk about uh, – what uh, President Trump is doing to fulfill his campaign promise on NAFTA. Back in a minute, folks, on the Fallon Forum. All right, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon here in the studio with my bold Iowa shirt on. I'm email uh, second day sitting next to Charles Goldman with his normal ISU shirt on. Right. I, you know, there probably aren't too many physicians in Iowa right now or anywhere in the country who are sporting a normal T-shirt. <laughs> you think? 
I'm sure there's a couple. Yeah? yeah? Yeah. This was a present when I was up there on a panel talking about medical medicalization and decriminalization of marijuana, which, as I've said on the air multiple times, I'm for. <laughs> and most physicians would disagree with you because no, they'd rather I, prescribe uh, high-priced uh, pharmaceutical drugs? No. I Actually, ironically, 70% um, of physicians or at least surgeons feel that um, we should medicalize and decriminalize. 70% of surgeons? Correct. I don't know about outside that. But surgeons are a pretty conservative group within the physician cadre. So uh, I, I would say that physicians have a, a different view of marijuana because, one, we're interested in any pharmacologic, which would help the patient. And especially in light of the two pharmacologics, which, you know, are legal, uh, namely alcohol and opioids, uh, the question of how much damage marijuana can do. And there's no, you know, I'm not a believer that marijuana is unquestionably safe in terms of mental changes, long-term mental changes. Right. But the question is, is it safer than using these other agents? Because people yeah. use alcohol to kill pain also. And alcohol, and you know, I, as you know, I, I, I'm very much involved in my own life with the consequences of the opioid epidemic, not Right. Because I have an opioid addiction, right, but, right, right, right. You know, because of taking care of a child of the opioid epidemic. Um, but alcohol is still the biggest problem of legal drugs in the United States by far. Yeah. And in terms of uh, – this, is, I'm, I'm trying to find a segue here. Sure. Yeah, in terms of bigness, Amazon comes to mind. <laughs> Amazon, Amazon, <laughs> Amazon and Walmart. That's right. Amazon and Walmart, Walmart come yeah. to mind. That's correct. And uh, the man of the people, Bernie Sanders, taking them on – because uh, they pay wages that uh, force their employees to be on public assistance. Well, uh, and this yeah, bill in particular comes after Amazon. Well, it 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 it's publicized as coming after Amazon. The yeah, question would be, right. um, who, which corporations would be uh, liable? Well, the to reason this. the reason it's publicized as coming after Amazon is because it's called the Stop. Get ready for the acronym: Bad Employers by Zeroing Out Subsidies Act. Bad employers by zeroing out subsidy spells Bezos. Right. And, <laughs> so, and, and for what those, a coincidence. Right. right. And I, I think most of you know that Jeff Bezos is the uh, monumentally wealthy. Uh, by monumentally, monumentally, you mean obscenely? Well, that's a value judgment. I, 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 would, say, I would say yes. But nevertheless, um, what's interesting is, is that this, you know, of course, because Bernie Sanders got involved with it, it became much more publicized. But – uh, last summer, uh, a number of Democratic representatives, uh, including Barbara Lee from California, uh, Ro Khanna from California, was surprised the California representatives introduced <laughs> something which was not as sexy called the Corporate Responsibility and Taxpayer Protection Act, right. which of course didn't get out of out of uh, committee uh, in the Republican-led House. And essentially, what the argument here is, is that there is a hidden subsidy to the wealth of people like Jeff Bezos and the Waltons and others, the Wrigley's and, you know. He's the, he's the world's wealthiest person. Correct. Even more so than Bill Gates. That's right. Right. Um, or Buffett. So the issue is if you're paying your employees at these mega corporations wages that are insufficient to even allow them to put food on the table. Yeah. Then food stamps and other uh, government assistance programs are essentially subsidies yeah. that allow you to keep wages at that level. And the median Amazon wage is uh, 28000 which is barely above the poverty level for a family of four. Right. but That's the median wage. Well, but the one problem here is, is Amazon that unusual? 
Because remember, what's no. the minimum wage in Iowa? Seven and a half, seven twenty-five. Okay, so that's three hundred dollars a week. That uh, before taxes, that that correlates to a fifteen thousand dollar a year income. Yeah. So, it, I guess one of the first issues is well, if you're paying somebody what's the legal minimum wage, then isn't that accepting that should that should be sufficient? Well, and, and no, because if the if the legal minimum wage is clearly inadequate to keep uh, a family from living in poverty, then something's wrong with that minimum wage. All right, but but so you know, I guess it's not that I don't like the idea. I I, mean, I I like the idea especially because it would make manifest to the American people how rich people make money off of their sweat and yeah. their difficulties. Yeah. Um, but the you know the question would be well again if you're going to make a worker uh, or a potential worker unappealing to a large corporation because they think they're going to have to pay some sort of penalty on the fact that they're going to um, be getting government assistance, then you could go with the Costco model, you know, which a, a direct competitor obviously of Walmart. Uh, and, and to some degree Amazon, who employ far less workers than equivalent Sam's Clubs or Walmarts do, but pay them a lot better and give them good benefits, but that means less jobs. That's a better option. I mean, certainly if – yeah. Just the, the sheer – I mean, what, what uh, Amazon has, what, over half a million jobs? Right. I believe. And, yeah, Walmart is, uh, is, is quite a bit less than that, 130,000 jobs – but they created 130,000 jobs in the past year. The other question is, how are you going to administratively do this? Oh, well, you mean you mean uh, that is that's a good question. You know, you know. Again, maybe the the best thing that the the benefit to what Sanders is doing is to raise the issue because I think maybe a lot of people weren't aware uh, that it's not just Walmart and other you know service jobs that pay people such poor wages that they have to be on public assistance. I mean, you know, Amazon is huge, and uh, again, they've they got that way really fast, and they've got that way apparently because they've been they've been willing to pay horrible wages uh, that may be legal, but are nowhere near enough for people to live on. Well, but that's, so a, that's maybe, a much more systematic problem. So, and but so maybe, maybe the benefit of what Sanders is doing is it points to the need for systemic change. I would agree with that. I think it's another way of perhaps getting at the issue of a minimum wage without having to go to what some cities have done and say it's fifteen dollars. You know, right. even if it's fifteen dollars, you're still only looking at thirty thousand dollars a year. Yeah. Well, which is uh, which is a it, lot a lot better than yes, uh, what many of these companies are paying. So. Right. But here, you know, this is this is I think part of what Democrats are trying to do, which is make the argument that it all sounds really good about tax cuts, for instance. Mm -hmm. But if you don't pay taxes, it doesn't matter. Right. And what you do pay is sales taxes. So you pay regressive taxes if you're making $25,000 a year. You really don't pay much in income taxes, so tax reform doesn't help you. But tax reform certainly helps rich people yeah. and large corporations. Yeah. So I don't think this is a viable – I don't think it's a – it would create a bureaucracy that would be untenable. But I think the idea perhaps of forcing these companies as part of this to actually show how many of their workers are receiving public assistance might embarrass them into better behavior. 
Yeah. Well, embarrassment is a great way to get corporations to behave better. Uh, Nike is a great example. Yeah. Uh, uh, what were you referring to? You mean the Kaepernick thing, or no, 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 no. The, the no, the uh, years ago, the um, the conditions in sweatshops where they were their shoes are being made in Southeast Asia, other places, mm-hmm. and um, the exposure to those conditions and and uh, associated problems. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it embarrassed Nike, and it meant uh, it, it led to a drop in sales, and eventually led to the company. You know, instituting some pretty serious reforms. So, you know, if if what Sanders and others others are doing on this front helps embarrass companies to, um, you know, to the point where people try to go elsewhere for those services, those products, um, then that you know that that's that's doing a good that's doing democracy and our economy and the folks who struggle the most at the bottom end of the economic spectrum. It's doing this doing us all a favor. Well, I think that that. That's true, and um, what I would say is that um, redistribu- redistribution probably is not going to work, but pre-distribution may work. Yes, I agree. And pre-distribution would be doing things such as setting a ratio between corporate managerial compensation and worker compensation, and if you don't keep that ratio, those that if you're doing business with the American government, you don't do business with the American government anymore. All right, going to take a quick second here to uh, thank some of our business partners in the Des Moines Metro. Thanks to Sid Cohn with Catering by Sid. Uh, Sid uses a lot of local and fresh ingredients in season, and every one of her catering arrangements is custom-made. That's Catering by CYD, Catering by Sid. Thanks also to uh, Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been Working uh, as a as a licensed veterinarian in, in Central Iowa for over 30 years, uh, give her a shout for your critters' care, large or small. She can handle them all. Uh, thanks also to uh, Gateway Marketing Cafe, located at 20th and Woodland in the Sherman Hill neighborhood. Uh, that's my grocery store, folks, and a great place also for breakfast, lunch, and supper. And of course, they too have a catering service. Okay, so back to our conversation. Uh, switching gears for a minute here. President Trump, of course, one way that he was able to win states like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, Ohio, was by calling for an end to NAFTA. And so let's um, let's take a little, uh, you know, time out here from uh, Kavanaugh and the other uh, hot button issues to ask whether Trump has done anything resembling uh, a, you know, a maintaining a commitment to that promise to and NAFTA. Well, before we start that, let me ask you a question, Ed. Did uh, President Obama do anything to try to renegotiate NAFTA? No. See, that's not true. He did? In fact... Of of any substance? Yeah, (laughs) of significant substance. Okay. In fact, if if you recall, the TPP included Canada and Mexico. Right. And so... But the TPP TPP was... The Trans-Pacific Partnership was horrible. Why? Uh, again, just uh, continuing to outsource, you know, businesses. Uh, continuing which businesses? To, uh, you, you name it. Any anyone that would be that would be able to and willing to locate in a low wage, you know, low wage market with uh, lower environmental standards. Okay, now I'll, I'll grant you that was a problem. The environmental standards issue was a huge problem because other companies were, would be able to sue the American government essentially. If they lost business because our standards are higher than elsewhere in the world, which, of course, it wouldn't be a problem anymore 
under the Trump administration <laughs> right, because our right, standards right. are no longer higher yeah. than elsewhere in the world. Yeah, we'll be the next target for, <laughs> That's right. for, for corporations to move back to and, and low wages. You are absolutely correct that the Obama administration as part of TPP was going to allow a more free trade approach to the auto industry. But for the most part, um, you would never have known that NAFTA, which did need updating, and, and you know Trump was correct in that regard, not in the sense I think he was campaigning, hmm. because you know President Trump believes that trade deficits are all that matter, um, which is and, pretty naive. Yeah, and it's 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 in terms of economics, just completely facile and simplistic. Um, trade deficits indicate the reality of monetary policies and the reality of monetary you know, relationships in this world. The U.S. dollar remains the reserve currency, right? So business is done everywhere For in the now. world. Well, but it's an important <laughs> thing yeah. because having the reserve currency is going to tend to make your exports more expensive and your imports cheaper. The advantage to the American public of that reserve currency is it keeps interest rates in this country way below where they should be. Which, of course, then drives the housing market in this country because of mortgages being cheap and other things. And consumer credit isn't cheap, but it's cheaper than it normally would be. So eliminating trade deficits would have profound negative effects in this country monetarily and fiscally. So the president and then, you know, the business community and, and the business journals like Bloomberg and Wall Street Journal were not impressed that what happened between Mexico and the United States in the initial deal before Canada joined today and the president, of course, showing once again why he's a huckster, <laughs> unlike President Obama, who could never seem to deign to go out and take credit for what was going on, including the fact that he was renegotiating tr- trade well, relationships. He comes out and says, look, I'm saving manufacturing jobs hmm. because which two industries other than two specific things, very little has changed with what was already on the table to renegotiate NAFTA previously under Obama. And that relates, number one, to the dairy industry, mm-hmm. which in this case really is 40,000, 20 to 40,000 dairy people in northern Wisconsin. Po- completely a political act. Okay? Um, and the auto changes. Now, Republicans love to say, we, we're not here to pick winners and losers, right? We're here to do the free market thing. But they are protecting the car industry to the exclusion of other industries who are going to be hurt by the protection of the auto industry. An industry, by the way, that doesn't seem to be having a problem, you know, making huge profits under the present regimen. So what exactly is the problem there? Um it's a, it, it, you know, they. Well, the, the problem is much deeper. The, the, of course, the, it the, is. the problem is that we have a, we have a, we have a global economy that moves labor and manufacturing around to whatever place it can get the uh, get the best deal for the owners of whatever industry we're talking about. Uh, you know, the 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 what would really, I mean, I I, I think the the most important change we could see economically is a. A focus on relocalizing our production and our consumption, and 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 these trade treaties are the antithesis of that. You know, if we have, um, I mean, if you really believe in 
in, in the in the need for a strong local economy, then support the businesses that are in your community. Uh, support keeping jobs in your community. And 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 again, I you know th- these these trade treaties take it all in the other direction. So you know whether whether Trump is going to well, you know again, I'm not I'm not familiar with the details of what Obama did. Um, I, I, I know politically one reason Trump won was because he talked about, he hit a nerve. A lot of people don't like seeing our jobs go overseas. A lot of people don't, you know. They like seeing the prices at Walmart be what they are. Yeah. See, until they start realizing that, oh, maybe that has something to do with the fact that our Main Street now is dried up and composed of empty buildings, that we have to now pay more taxes uh, in order to tear down these old buildings or in order to establish a TIF district to uh, to revitalize them. Mm-hmm. You know, at some point, people figure that out. Right. It's um, It may be hard to figure it out right away because the folks pushing this economic model, model are great snake oil salesmen. But uh, but that that is the model. I mean, that is the reality. And, and well, it's the and, current reality. It's maybe and, not and the how best you, reality. No, but how are you going to change that? Well, you don't you don't change it by continuing to hunker down and merely you know tweak existing trade treaties that have caused the problem. I mean, you don't do it by creating an entirely new system called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, uh, again, some have referred to as NAFTA on steroids. So, you know, what Trump is doing on this issue is, is, is nothing to get excited about. Um, right, because... Although it's interesting that, you know, what Trump... You know, this is what Democrats used to talk about doing, <laughs> about, about repealing NAFTA, about addressing the problems created by NAFTA. And it's a, it's a, it's a radical... You know, faux populist, right wing president who's actually trying to do something about it. Okay, Again, I don't see. I don't see him succeeding or going very but, far. But, but, but let, let's look at the reality. The reality is that you're not going to stop multinational corporations from moving jobs where it's advantageous to them. Why not? Why not? We have to stop that. If we don't stop that from happening, then the the, the whole this country has found itself into is going to get deeper and deeper. Because it's not going to work. Because you're you're only going to be creating more malinvestment in old industries that should disappear. You're also overestimating the degree to which free trade has, has, has gotten rid of manufacturing jobs. The estimate by, you know, a usually fairly liberal-leaning Brookings Institute is, is there's only been a loss of about 100,000 manufacturing jobs that is you can attribute. Net? Is that net? Yeah. Well, net's not the important, no, no, important no, number. I mean, it's it's a, it's a, how many how many were lost regardless but, of... But people have to move into... You can't... You, Protecting industries that are are outmoded and technologically behind, why are we still building cars for contact on on roads? I agree. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, So we're protecting an industry to basically not innovate. Yeah. And the the biggest – you and I both know that we're allowing this this meme to go out there that it's – it's the jobs overseas that's the issue. No, it's automation in every industry, including coal. The reason that there's only 45,000 people working in coal anymore is because of automation, not yeah, because part, of – Partly because we're moving beyond coal. But the, but the thing I mean, is that, 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 antedated, is that antedated the collapse of coal because of the pricing of natural gas. Right. What I'm saying is, is that I agree with you about local industry and local businesses. But the way to do that is find new industries for people to work in. And, of course, that industry, which is obvious, is supporting – Energy, you know, uh, energy alternatives, not not stupid ideas like clean coal. There's no such thing, but true innovation. Get yeah. people out on people's roofs, putting solar panels on their roofs. 
That's work that's done locally mm-hmm. and brings money to the local economy. These trade deals are not going to change the inexorable move of capital all over the world. The information technology has changed that, and automation has changed that. Yeah. Well, um, we could talk for a long time about this. Yeah. But we can't because we're <laughs> running out of time. Anyway, uh, <laughs> folks, I uh, appreciate you tuning into today's Fallon Forum. Uh, we had uh, earlier on the program Evan Berger. Joined us to talk about the Iowa caucuses and the uh, movement at the national level to reform the superdelegate uh, process and the whole situation with primaries and caucuses generally. Uh, Charles Goldman and I have been um, fighting. It's a pretty bloody mess back here behind <laughs> the uh, behind the uh, producer, producer's table. Uh, thanks for joining us, Charles. Um, we need to bring the rabbi back on. Well, we need to bring the rabbi back on, yes. <clears throat> and we need to have your brother back on to talk about the New England Patriots. Well, we can do that, that next week. Won something. <laughs> All right, thanks again to listening today, folks. Thanks to Marega Palma, our producer. Thanks to Sherry Hardina, our production assistant. We'll be back live next Monday at 11 o'clock Central Time. All right, so what is wrong with America? I, I saw a story in the Des Moines Register that encapsulated that problem that answered that question. Uh, but first, I, I have to, in, in, in the context of explaining that, I have to confess my, the depth of my cultural illiteracy. I don't own a television. I know, I know, I've been on the radio for almost 10 years now, and I, I don't own a radio, I don't own a TV, I hardly ever drive in a car. My, the, the only thread connecting me with, the, with, with modern American culture is my computer and my smartphone, which I use pretty judiciously, but... The, um, you know, for example, I miss things. Someone once asked me if I, what I thought about Downton Abbey. And I said, I didn't even know Des Moines had a monastery. So, you know, you know that, those are the kind of things that I miss that result in embarrassing social moments uh, in society. Uh, but anyway, um, I also don't know much about Transformers, okay? There are, there's, apparently there's a movie called Transformers, uh, apparently, there's a star named Mark Wahlberg. Tell you about him in a second. When I hear of, hear of a transformer, I think of those uh, glass casings on the top of the wires on the telephone pole behind my house that squirrels occasionally like to fry themselves on so they can knock the power out for an entire neighborhood. Uh, but no, apparently, Mark Wahlberg is a huge Transformers uh, star. Um, again, I didn't know that. I know it now because he's in the news. Because the... Um, paper that the uh, 1% depend on, the Des Moines Register, uh, wrote about Wahlberg, who apparently also, in addition to being a transformer, has a restaurant chain, and he is now um, going into partnership with another chain, the uh, Hy-Vee, uh, grocery store chain. And apparently there are 26 Hy-Vees that are going to be opening up Wahlberg restaurants inside, uh, inside their, their, their facilities. But uh, that's not the real crux of the story here. Because, uh, because Mark Wahlberg now has interest in Central Iowa, he's trying to find a place to maybe not move to, but at least have a home that he can stay in while he's here. And so he had his eye on this 10,000-square-foot mansion owned by uh, Denny Albo. Uh, Denny Albo is noted as a, an Ankeny resident and businessman. Who made his? Who made a lot of his money in uh, in in agribusiness, but who also made a ton of money in real estate. And he's known for 
pushing that clout around him. The, he he and another another local real estate developer in the Ankeny area are are notorious for pushing farmers really hard to you know to give up their land to sell them their land and uh, to kind of make it clear that if you don't things aren't going to go real well for you. One example, my favorite example was um, oh quite a few years back, maybe 15 years back. A letter was circulated. I can't remember whether it was Dennis Alba or the other Dennis, a uh, real estate uh, tycoon. But um, a letter was circulated to local farmers saying, please plant soybeans this year. Even if you're planting soybeans on soybeans, again, the typical crop rotation in Iowa is corn and soybeans, not two years of soybeans in a row. But the, the letter said, even if you're planting, you planted soybeans last year, plant them again this year because it won't reduce your crop yield that much and it looks so much more prime for development. I mean, what an obnoxious letter for a farmer to receive from a incredibly wealthy real estate tycoon saying, hey, do this because it's going to help me <laughs> because I need all the help I can get. Uh, you know, and again, you know, these developers are some of the biggest welfare kings and queens out there. They have gotten so much money through tax income and financing, tax abatement, road extensions, sewer and water line work. Anyway, Albao has this mansion, this 10,000 square foot mansion that uh, Wahlberg had his eye on, wanted to buy. You know, it comes with a, a 19 hole private golf course because 18 holes aren't enough apparently. And um, <laughs> Wahlberg wanted this, but Denny Albaugh made a deal with another local real estate and business tycoon, uh, Todd Reuter. And um, what interests me is that they didn't, he didn't just sell the home to Reuter. They made a deal. They had a, they had a, a barter of sorts where, where uh, Reuter gave Albaugh a house out in Glen Oaks. That's, that's a really wealthy subdivision, probably the premier wealthy subdivision in West Des Moines. It's a gated community. Albo gets a house in West Des Moines, in, in Glen Oaks. He also gets a house in Panor, which um, I presume that's going to be on Lake Panorama, which is a beautiful spot, very coveted, uh, very pricey. Albo also gets two vacant properties, one in Ankeny, one in West Des Moines. Presumably, those are vacant properties where he's not going to grow corn, of course, and probably not even soybeans. He's probably going to grow uh, another housing development uh, or maybe just one huge 10,000-square-foot home. So... What is, um, you know, that, that's, that's what Reuter gives to Albo in exchange for this, um, this home, this mansion, this 10,000 square foot mansion, which has an assessed value of uh, 3.6 million. And um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I, here's, okay, so lifestyles of the rich and ridiculous. Um, this warrants a front page story in the Des Moines Register business section. It also raises a lot of questions about tax evasion. I mean, I, maybe not evasion in the legal, in the sense that any any actual crime is committed in this arrangement, but um, I imagine that there are ways of taking advantage of tax laws, and that this arrangement is one of them. I, I don't know. I you know, of course the. The, the article, is there's nothing critical about it in the article. It's all, it's all glorious stuff. You know, Wahlberg's great. Alba's great. Isn't it wonderful to see people with 8,000, 10,000 square foot homes, with multiple homes uh, that are, you know, bigger than 
bigger than small cities in third world countries, you know. So uh, <laughs> the um, so so no critical analysis was done in the register story. Of course, we didn't expect it, but um, I would like to see that done. Uh, I know I'm not sure I'm the guy to do it time wise and ability wise, but somebody with a knowledge of tax law should look into this arrangement and see exactly what benefits accrue to both Alba and Reuter in this transaction. Now, of course, uh, Alba is well aware that um, that more and more people are wising up to the fact that you know it's it's not it, it's not. And I, 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 I know there's there's some out there that are always going to believe the lies lies coming at you from from the uh, corporate right. No, but I'm sorry, it's not the immigrants that are causing us our problems. Uh, it's not the gay couple that moved to, moved into your neighborhood down the block that are causing your problems. You know, it's not poor black people that are causing your problems or Native Americans, you know, standing up for their rights. That's not the problem. It's it's people like this and our laws that make it possible for them to do this and our inability to see through this very, very thin veneer, this this falseness as to who they are and what they're doing. They're basically robbing us blind in order to get disgustingly wealthy. There's no reason. Again, if you look at the tax benefits that have accrued to Alba, regardless of the tax benefits of this particular type of transaction, if you look at the benefits that have accrued to him over the years through all those you know, subsidies that lawmakers have put in place, often at the, at the request of these of, of, of folks like him, of other big business interests. No, that's that's not the free market. It's not them rising to the top because of their ability. It's them taking advantage of us through various means, political means, economic means. So, of course, they know there's some pushback. And and they, they, they know that the public is thinking, well, maybe this isn't quite right. More and more of us are thinking that. So the response, of course, you know, it also comes to light that uh, Allball, in addition to having these ridiculous homes, has a collection of nearly 150 classic Chevrolets. <laughs> in addition to that, those and the golf courses and the big mansions, he has that as well. But um, but the uh, his uh, apologist, oh sorry, spokesperson, says, "quote," and this is in the article, "through the use of the golf course, the private car collection, and associated facilities, the Allball family." has assisted in raising in excess of $10 million for local charitable organizations over the last 10 years. Oh, so it's all good. Sorry, your 10,000 square foot home. No problem with that. 150 classic Chevrolets, that's great, as long as you're giving a pittance back to some undisclosed, unnamed local charity. Now, I have no idea what those charitable organizations might be, but they might, in fact, be some 501c3 that all ball controls. This is not uncommon. Hey, it happens on the on the political left as well. See Hillary Clinton for details. Ed Fallon with you today, folks. Um, eviscerating the rich and powerful because if we don't do it, who will? <laughs>